Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into new developments in the Missouri education community. If you are a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you are in the right place. Today, we're going to talk about a recent development in Missouri school law that relates to transgender students. Of course, this has been an issue for Missouri public school districts, uh, and we've been struggling with this one for a time now. And you may even recall that last December, in episode 29 of this podcast, we discussed a jury verdict against the Blue Springs School District in favor of a transgender student. In that case, the student who was assigned female at birth claimed that his rights under the Missouri Human Rights Act were violated because he was denied access to the male restroom and locker room based upon his gender. In December, a Jackson County jury returned a verdict in favor of the transgender student in excess of $4 million, most of that amount being in punitive damages. Recently, the judge in the case, in effect, overturned the jury verdict. The court granted judgment to the school district, notwithstanding the $4 million jury verdict in favor of the student. So today, we are going to discuss this decision and what it means for Missouri public schools. I've asked a couple of my partners to weigh in on the recent decision and what this might mean for all of us. With us today to discuss this decision is my partner, Drew Marriott. And to discuss what it might mean as a practical matter for schools is my partner, Emily Omohundro. Welcome, Drew. Welcome, Emily. Hello. Hi. All right. Uh, as I said, we've got this recent decision. As if things were not cloudy enough for us in dealing with this issue over the past couple of years, we've got a jury verdict in favor of a transgender student, then the court takes that away. So why don't we start there, Drew, if you don't mind, and if you can give us just kind of a brief summary of this particular case involving the Blue Springs School District and this transgender student. And uh, just a little bit of history here. Yeah. So this is a case that I know we discussed a while back, but it's been pending since 2014. The student plaintiff in the case has already graduated from college. So just give somebody an indication uh, how long it's taken for us to, one, get to a jury trial on the matter and, and now not necessarily have it over because of uh, the way the courts handled it. So this was related to a student who, prior to entering middle school, began identifying as a male student and transitioning from female to male gender. And so, as we've discussed previously, this was purely a request for accommodation to use male restrooms and male locker rooms. And uh, meaning it didn't it didn't have anything to do with bullying or harassment of the individual based on their transgender status. Correct. None of none of the claims, while there was some evidence of that presented at trial, none of the claims were really related to student on student misconduct or staff on student misconduct. It was purely related to whether that student should have access to those facilities based on their identified gender. So this was purely an issue of public accommodation under the Missouri Human Rights Act and whether that student uh, was entitled to an accommodation based on their identified gender. And so just as a reminder, this was a case that was initially dismissed by the trial court. It went up to the Court of Appeals and up to the Missouri Supreme Court. And the Missouri Supreme Court remanded it back to the trial court saying that plaintiff had in fact asserted a claim under the Missouri Human Rights Act 
and provided specific jury instructions that the trial court should use when this case went to trial. And so those jury instructions, I mean, the, the interesting takeaways here, and this is, this is what's going to be fascinating from this amended judgment is how this plays out, is the majority in that court said that regardless of biological sex, the claim was based on sex. So we've, you know, we've talked through for years now, sex stereotyping, gender identity, sexual orientation, and whether those are protected classes and how that is going to play out under the Missouri Human Rights Act. And we haven't had clear answers. And then we get this, this verdict from this jury and think that we have some clarity on the law, knowing that that may go up on appeal. And now what's come back is said, well, despite the Supreme Court's language, they told us specifically what the jury instruction should be. And that jury instruction, the part that the trial court looked at was the second element of their claim, plaintiff's male sex was a contributing factor in such a denial to the access or accommodations or the facilities. And so in looking at that, the trial court came back and said, we use the verdict, we use the verdict director language, the jury instruction language provided by the Missouri Supreme Court. And that required that plaintiff prove his male sex was a contributing factor in, in defendant's decision to exclude him from the male restroom and locker room facilities. The court then said the sole uncontradicted evidence at trial was that plaintiff was excluded from these male facilities because of his female genitalia. And so, you know, the issue, the issue there is that it wasn't his male sex that resulted in the exclusion. It was his female genitalia. And so there's some difficulty with, you know, the position that the Supreme Court took, but the specific jury instructions that the Supreme Court provided. And so based on that and the fact that the sole uncontradicted evidence at trial was related to the female genitalia and not the male sex, the court came back and said, even though the jury came to this decision, even though the jury reached its verdict, by law, with the evidence presented at trial, the jury could not have reached that decision. Okay. I'm sorry, Drew. I just want to unpack some of this because I think yeah. it's fairly confusing to most lay people out there. And frankly, I have a, you know, sometimes I struggle with trying to articulate what the court really has done here. Um, so let's break it down a little bit. Basically, when it went up on appeal to the Missouri Supreme Court, the Missouri Supreme Court decided in favor of the student correct, and said, in effect, you can have gender discrimination that's based on the failure to uh, provide a public accommodation to somebody based on their gender, and even if that includes their transgender status or sexual orientation. Is that fair? That's fair. Okay. So, and in that decision, the Supreme Court was pretty clear to say, okay, if you, when you get this back trial court, you've got to instruct the jury on the law in a very specific way, which would include saying that plaintiff's sex was a contributing factor in denial of the use of the restroom in the locker room, right? Correct. In, in effect. And so they focused it on the male sex language, which, which became the hangup. The, uh, the Supreme Court says the jury verdict director says male sex. Okay. Yes. So the, uh, with respect to that, as you look at it, the trial court took the instructions that were in the opinion from the Supreme Court and basically just, just that's what was used here for the jury. And when you do that, based on the facts of the case, and pretty much any case, <laughs> uh, presumably – you're going to end up in this trap, right? Where you have 
somebody has to prove that their transitioned gender, the gender with which they identify is the reason why they're being discriminated against when it's really the fact that they have transitioned that's the issue. Is that a way of looking at it? I mean, I think I think that's fair. And I think that may have been what the Supreme Court's intent was in their decision. I mean, I think the, the decision goes through and says, hey, this is, we're not talking about sex stereotyping or gender identification or sexual orientation. This is sex. And therefore, it's protected. But what the court did in that issuing those jury instructions, the specific instructions to be used in this case, put us back into that same loop of arguing, you know, kind of like we have been over the years, whether it is sex stereotyping or gender identification. And so the kind of revolving thing that we're back on is, well, it said male sex, but plaintiff only proved a case that they were treated differently because of female genitalia. And so that's, I mean, that, that, is, that is the part that I think in looking at this as, as attorneys, and, you know, we're always looking for some kind of clarity, right? Some, some decision from the court that provides us some clarity so we can have rules or maxims for which we can operate off of. And, and we're back in this land of unknown a little bit because this issue will be appealed as well. But by the language of the jury instruction that the Supreme Court said, this is a jury instruction you'll use. And based on the evidence that came in a trial, you know, one question is, will you, under that instruction, will you ever be able to have a claim for gender identification, sexual orientation, et cetera, if those are the elements that have to be proved? But you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it is, that's how the court laid it out. And that's, I think, part of the conundrum. Okay. Well, and it, it still is probably going to remain kind of uh, academic or maybe even a little bit wonky for people that are trying to study this, but at the, at the outgrowth of it is that, okay, we've got to apply this. <laughs> you know, we know we had a, you know, initially a jury verdict and then the courts kind of said, no, that's really not going to be appropriate given the law. And as you line up the facts with the law, as the Supreme court's given it to us, uh, that's not going to work. The jury cannot really find in favor of the plaintiff student and there may be no cases really that would qualify. So in all likelihood, this is something that's going to head back up uh, on appeal. Would you agree, Drew? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, even if it, you know, the interesting thing is, and I don't want to get too procedurally nerdy as a lawyer on these issues, but one of the things the court did was they also went ahead and granted the attorney's fees in response to a separate motion. And so those, are, those will be stayed until this is decided on appeal. They also, in that amended judgment, granted defendant's motion for a new trial. So I don't want to get into the details of that, but even, so this gets appealed, say plaintiffs prevail on appeal, it goes up to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court sends it back to the trial court. There's still a good chance that this goes and is tried again before we, you know, say it goes all the way up, the Supreme Court sends it back to the trial court, says, no, we're going to do it this way. Uh, the trial court's already granted a new trial in the instance that happens. And so we may have to try it again and then have it go up again. So, I mean, there's uncertainty that is potentially there for a while. Okay. Well, t given all of that, uh, which tends to be, you know, a labyrinth to try to unravel here, Emily, <laughs> uh, given that wonderful and uh, cloudy legal landscape, what think you about what this means for us 
I mean, what should we be thinking about if we're a Missouri public school district and we have a student that is uh, has transitioned or is transitioning and they want to use the restroom or locker room of the gender with which they identify? I think that the takeaway for us on this is that uh, there still remains a high amount of risk associated with denying that request from, you know, from a legal perspective, we could certainly see OCR complaints. We could see a federal lawsuit. We could see another state lawsuit, and we simply don't know what the outcome of that would be. But we know what happened, you know, initially with the jury in that Blue Springs case. So the risk is still there for us. But as Drew noted, uh, the certainty of outcome when it comes at least to the Missouri Human Rights Act and our state courts is, you know, that certainty or that bit closer to certainty that we had with that jury verdict is gone until we figure out, you know, what the appeals process gives to us. So, you know, I don't I think we're back to explaining uh, that boards need to assess the legal risk that's associated with these kinds of requests and what a denial, what a denial would look like and kind of work one-on-one with students and parents whenever we have these requests, trying to create a plan that works for the family and the student and I know that, you know, many boards are concerned about the response of their communities uh, to allowing um, a student to use the restroom of the gender with which they identify. So boards are going to have to weigh that community, the potential community sentiments with the legal risk associated with a denial. So one thing that you said that we probably need to come back to is that really for purposes of the federal law, Title IX, this decision had nothing to do with Title IX, had nothing to do with federal law. So federal law remains the same. Um, agreed? Agreed. So now uh, we, we have kind of these question marks surrounding state law and what it might mean in the wake of this Blue Springs case. But when you really look at it, we still have pretty strong indication as to what federal law is and certainly how the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights is going to interpret it. Is Can you kind of elaborate a little bit on that? Yes. So we have a federal case law out there and decisions that in both employment cases and in student cases related to gender identity and Title IX, Title Um, seven discrimination claims. And those are in favor of allowing access and granting requests associated with restroom use, locker room use, pronoun usage, name preference, all those things. So if a case is filed under Title IX, Um, either a complaint with OCR or a federal lawsuit against a school district, we have pretty strong indication of where the precedent tells us that's going to go. And so what's really up in the air is whether the Missouri Human Rights Act applies to these cases, and if so, how, what, like as Drew said, what elements do we need in order to meet the, the standard there? 
So the, the amount of risk remains high with a denial of a request to for restroom access, locker room access, that sort of thing. So, so it, it doesn't make sense right now for districts to adopt a policy or handbook provisions about restroom and locker room access because again, it's it's so unsettled. But I think that what does make sense is what we've been preaching for years with the hopes that perhaps there would be some clarity at some point, but you know that we're really just having a meeting with families. Every student in this situation is gonna be in a bit of a different place. That place will change over time. So it makes sense to try to have those initial conversations and figure out what exactly the student and the parents are asking for in terms of adjustments in the school environment. And then, you know, you're really going to have to get with your board and figure out where the board is on uh, this particular issue. So, uh, Drew, what do you, what do you think? Uh, I mean, Emily's pointed out a lot of great insights into, you know, what we need to be thinking and what's going on now, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the one thing I will say, you know, we, we feel like we have some more clarity at the federal level. We don't have an Eighth Circuit decision, but we we know that the United States Supreme Court dealt with the Gavin Grimm case and sent it back and essentially set where that was at. But the one thing I will say is that, you know, the Missouri Supreme Court case was pretty clear that you have a claim, right? You have a you have the ability to make a claim under the Missouri Human Rights Act for, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity, and those are, we're not going to look at them in this roundabout way, like sex stereotyping, we're going to look at them as sex claims. Now we have a question here, whether under the court's preferred or mandated jury instruction, whether you can even prove that claim. But the question that's been answered is the Missouri Supreme Court says you can bring that claim, right? So it's not going to stop somebody from filing a charge of discrimination with MCHR and attempting to go down that path. And what I think districts need to understand is if that happens, you're not going to get it dismissed. You're not going to get it on summary judgment. You will likely have to go to trial on that issue and litigate that to the end. And then it may be an instruction issue at the end. But but as it stands right now, we still have a Missouri Supreme Court case that says you have a cause of action there and you're not going to get rid of it early. So that's one thing I think from a, you know, to, to consider is while we have this uncertainty, uh, I think the spirit of what the Missouri Supreme Court was saying is, yeah, this is a protected class. It's protected under sex and you can you can assert a cause of action. The uncertainty that we have now is how does one prove that under those jury instructions? And I think, it would, you know, based on the trial court's interpretation and the parsing through of the language of the Supreme Court's jury instructions, somebody will figure out how to bring you know, bring a claim to fit into that. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what the Court of Appeals do with it, whether the, the Western District or the Supreme Court comes in and says, well, no, this is what we meant. And our jury instruction wasn't spot on. And there's, you know, changes to that. Or no, this is not what we meant. And this is what we meant by the jury instruction. And so this was a proper outcome. But, you know, the one thing I want to want to be clear is Missouri Supreme Court spoken that it is protected class. It's just a question of how how it gets to verdict. Meaning that, uh, you know, gender identity can be a form, uh, you know, it, even though not hard coded as a protected class, you can have gender discrimination on the basis of the, of somebody's uh, transition status or their gender identification, right? Correct. 
So as we look at it, I want to, I mean, it sounds like that we're kind of back to where we were after this particular case had been decided by the Supreme Court. And we've got federal law where it is. So there's several different layers of risk here. And I kind of want to just kind of recap that. So that, and just to make sure we're all on the same page and you guys agree with this, but, you know, the risk on the federal side is clearly there for under Title IX. Um, you know, given the what the U.S. Supreme Court has said about uh, in the context of Title VII under Bostick and everything else, we're looking at we do have sub, you know substantial risk uh, if we don't accommodate somebody based on their their uh, gender identification and their request for accommodations. So you have federal side, but then on the state side, you have a, a great deal of risk too, to the point of looking at this verdict initially. I mean, if we think about this verdict, the Blue Spring School District, you know, they kind of took some risk, it sounds like to me. But at the end of the day, the jury was so, I don't want to say upset, but, uh, you know, they were, they felt strongly enough that they awarded $4 million in punitive damages against the Blue Spring School District for not accommodating this individual student. So at the end of the day, we've got a ton of risk. Is that fair to say? I mean, I, I don't want to overstate it or understate it. I mean, we've got a substantial amount of legal risk if we don't accommodate. Everybody yes. agree? Yes. And what I would say is, you know, even though the court entered, entered an attorney fee amount, which is going to be stayed pending that judgment, they didn't do a multiplier, but that attorney fee amount was still $553,000. And so that's another number that just add that to the risk as to what may happen if, if we go to trial on one of these. Right, which is kind of contingent on whether or not they keep the verdict in favor of the student and everything, but it's still another half a million dollars on top of everything else that we've been talking about. Correct. So, so I think we're kind of back to where we were uh, over the last couple of years, and uh, we we need to be having those conversations that Emily was talking about, working with families if we can, and then understanding and appreciating the risk that's involved if we do deny a student access based on locker rooms and, and restrooms and other things, I suppose. But And then really, we probably need to, not to put too fine a point on it, but we also have to remember that we need to be pretty careful when it comes to harassment or discrimination types of claims too, not the public accommodation claims, but the harassment discrimination claims of our uh, transgendered students. Okay, I'm gonna give you guys uh, some parting shots. Any, any walk away thoughts, takeaways that you wanna throw at, at folks? Anybody wanna start? No, just an apology. So Emily looks like she has one, but an apology that we don't have clarity on the law and that we may sound like broken records, but we're, we're kind of back to the broken record phase. This is all your fault, Drew. <laughs> so I think that, you know, a point that, Drew made, and I, and I want to emphasize again, is that, you know, at this point, the district would still have to defend a lawsuit uh, in the court of public opinion and in an actual court, and that costs time and money and effort as well. So regardless of you know, the clarity that we get, you know, we could still be defending these lawsuits and um, whether that's from an employment perspective or whether that's a student perspective, whether that's state court or federal court or, you know, arguing with OCR about 
what our practices and policies are. So I think that, you know, all those things are important to keep in mind in figuring out how we tackle this in individual districts. Great point, Emily. We've always got to, you know, we've got communities that may not be ready to, to make changes and, um, it puts boards and and and, and uh, the professionals, the uh, professional educators, in a very difficult spot sometimes to try to reconcile all of these competing interests. But having said that, uh, we know where the legal risks lie. All right. Well, thank you, Emily and Drew, for your insights today, and we thank you, the listeners, for taking the time today to listen to Ed Council Insights. We hope you'll follow and share our podcast on social media. And subscribe to hear the upcoming episodes on current legal topics and issues related to school law. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Or you can just check us out on our website. Just Google Ed Council. That's E-D-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, all one word. And you will find us there. Glad we could be together. And thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.